right, we are going once again. Welcome back to another edition of the Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace podcast. And today we are going to answer a question that came in from one of our listeners. We've experienced an overwhelming amount of support. Our audience is growing every day. And for that, we thank all of you who are listening because you're sharing this. You're talking about it with your friends, with your brethren. And it's because of you guys, our audience is growing and hopefully we'll be able to continue to reach people that need to hear this message of hope in Jesus and about the grace of God. So thank you all very, very much. Yeah. And I'm excited because of how wide reaching this uh, podcast is going. We, We have quite a few downloads from Australia, which I think is absolutely awesome. I would love to have an Australian accent and I want you to instead I have a a Alabama accent. I have the worst kind that you you could possibly. (laughs) I wouldn't say it's nah, man. Nah, that's, that's not the worst of all. I mean, you've heard some of those cockney British accents, me. you know, those are, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it may be pretty close to an Alabama accent, but I wonder how many Australians wish they had an Alabama accent. Yeah, that's the real question. That's the real burning question that we're seeking to answer today on this. No, (laughs) that's not the question we're going to answer. Now, from time to time, what Kevin and I are going to do is, is we're, we want to engage with the questions that you guys send to us. And I know Kevin's had people reach out to him and express to him the blessing that this has been. And there have been questions asked of him. I've had folks reach out to me and express their Thanks for this podcast and this work and the good that it's doing for them and the renewing of their hope. You know, for so many of us, we go through these seasons of hopelessness and whenever we are knee deep in legalism, it's often really easy to lose that hope. And, you know, I'm reminded of what Peter said when he said, always be ready to give an answer for the reason of the hope that's within you. Well, you can't give an answer for the reason of the hope that's within you if you don't have any hope within you to begin with. And the fact that people are finding hope in this Christ-centered approach to scripture and life and faith is, it's so exciting for me just to see the impact that it's having as in, in this infancy of this project that we're undertaking. Well, and I think it's good too for, I'm, I'm, honestly, myself, I'm really enjoying doing this. This is, I think, very healthy for us to be able to publicly discuss this and have this platform. And it's a lot better than just having a, a quick article because we want people to really feel connected that it's more than just, here's a few Bible verses, go and, go and pray and read over these and come to your conclusion. You know, we really want to make sure that we're we're fleshing a lot of this out. And I've had several people private message me, send me some messages and emails saying how much they appreciate it because they're able to 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 do more than just hear a five minute explanation on something. It's something that we're going into great detail with and explaining our thought processes and trying to hit everything from all angles and not just say, this is what we believe. Here's a Bible verse for it, but trying to give some alternative understandings and explanations, and then also where we were at and why we changed and what make made us change. And that to me is the value in this long form format of a podcast is we're not really constrained by time limits. We're not really constrained by any, you know, advertisers or, 
or the the thought processes of anybody else, we're able to really be open and honest with where we have struggled, what we have wrestled with, and what we have found to help us resolve those struggles in Scripture and in our faith that leads us to a, a better understanding of God's will and also to a closer relationship with Jesus, because that's really what it's all about. And to that end, so many people have been excited to hear what we have discussed about the spirit of the law versus the letter of law, and especially about relational illustrations. The last episode we did, we've had a, a tremendous amount of interest in that one. Um, that one has been our most downloaded um, episode or the most quickly downloaded episode. It, it's downloading faster as a percentage than any of the other ones we've done. And that illustrates to me that a lot of people are interested in what they're interested in this idea. They're interested in reading through this. But even so, we had a question from one of our listeners, and this is what we're going to answer today. And they asked this question. She says, I've enjoyed your podcast and have appreciated what you've had to say. I do have a concern that I'd like to hear you address. It seems like when you discuss the spirit versus letter of the law and a relationship with Jesus, that you're implying that obedience isn't necessary. It almost seems like the idea of obedience is mocked as a necessary part of having a relationship with Christ. I would really appreciate clarification on whether you feel that obedience is necessary for a Christian. Thank you so much. So that's a good question. That's a really honest question. And I appreciate the straightforwardness of there. I mean, even the statement, it almost mocks the idea of obedience as a necessary part. I mean, that can be kind of strong language. But that's okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with asking a question. There's nothing wrong with, you know, coming to us or with anyone else. There should be nothing wrong with coming to any of your brethren with a question if that's a question that you're asking in good faith. You know, there's a difference between questions that are asked as gotcha questions or people listening just to try to find some reason to mark Kevin and Lee. You know what? I'm going to listen to what they have to say so I can really tear them apart and we're going to put them before the brotherhood and we're going to make them pay. We're going to tar and feather them and run them out on a rail. I'm sure we're going to have people listening with that, you know, predilection, but that really demonstrates more of their heart than it does ours. But to ask a question like this in good faith, I really appreciate it. And I think it's a really good question because it's something we really didn't get into that much with the last episode. Yeah, it's a really fair question. And it's something that I myself struggled with at the beginning. And one of the main reasons why is because when you when you have a complete system shift in your thinking, that is going to change. It's going to be a lot more difficult to to look at questions because now everything has shifted, everything has changed. And so before everything had to do with just a quick book, chapter and verse, and here's your Bible answer and this is it, it's an open and shut case. But now that we have shifted, and if the, the listener who asked this question is thinking about shifting their mindset as well, it becomes scary. And it's a very scary thing when you have gone from a law-based understanding of God to a relationship. And one of the reasons is because when we have looked at things through the lenses of law, we actually polarized the difference between love and obedience. When, instead of understanding that obedience actually is going to be a natural result of love, we polarized it. And we're like, well, if you're all about love, you know, Kevin's all about love now. All he cares about is love, 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 love. He cares nothing about obedience. And that was an accusation I got several years ago. 
And what that demonstrated, that comment, not the one you just read, but the one that someone made towards me several years ago, I said, well, what you're demonstrating is you believe there's a polarization between love and obedience. And that's something that never was uh, distinguished between when you look at scripture is that obedience is always a natural result of love. Uh, Most people look at obedience as just a checklist, as we talked about last week, is just something you're supposed to do. And so you can look at that checklist and say, because I did what was on this checklist, that must mean that I love you. And we see that Jesus, with the rich young ruler in Mark 10, 17 through 22, responded by saying, no, just because you did the checklist doesn't mean you love me because there are things not even on the checklist you should be doing that you're not doing. And it's those very things that have kept you from truly following me and loving me and having a relationship. And so I I would begin by responding to that question that it's a fair question. And I think it's a question everybody's going to struggle with at first when they're switching from a law-based approach to relational approach. But my first response would be, Love and obedience are never opposite. They're, they're, they're not in opposition to one another. Well, they're not. And one of the examples that I kept thinking of whenever I was mulling this question over and getting ready to, to discuss it today is the fact that I really, really want a motorcycle. I had motorcycles whenever I was a kid and I loved riding them from the time I was 11 till the time I was about 16, 17 years old. Love them. My wife is deathly afraid of motorcycles. She does not like motorcycles at all. One of the earliest memories she has of her biological dad is her mother picking gravel out of his back because he made the the sound choice, and I say that sarcastically, to, to drink and then ride his motorcycle home. Alcohol and motorcycles don't mix. And her biggest fear is, is that if I get a motorcycle, that I will die and I will leave her alone to raise the four savages that are our children alone. She doesn't want that. And I don't blame her. Now, from a legal perspective, as the man of the house, I'm the authority of the house and I can do what I want and go buy a motorcycle. Well, you're saying you can just do whatever you want. That's an accusation that you've heard and that I've heard bandied about whenever we discuss this idea. But I know my wife and I love my wife and I don't want to cause her any consternation. I'm the kind of guy in our relationship, I'm going to do what I want to do a lot of times. If there's something I want, I'm going to go buy it. But I'm not about to go buy a motorcycle, even though I really want one, even though I would really enjoy it because I know how that would hurt my wife. I know how that would worry her. I know how that would upset her. And for me to do that, if I were to go buy a motorcycle simply because I want it and simply because I have a right to do so, not only as a legal adult in a strict legal sense, but also as the husband or the man of the family, I can do whatever I want. If I go and do that, I'm not demonstrating love for her. I'm not showing love for her. So in my love for her, I'm going to acquiesce to her desire and I'm not going to buy it. To me, that's a really good example of how obedience works in a Christocentric or a love-centered, grace-centered framework. Yeah, and if uh, we, you and I, I think I've discussed this on this podcast, I'm not sure if we if we have in one of the uh, episodes before, but you always know that you're teaching grace properly when people respond by saying, "Does this mean we can do anything we want?" And the reason I say that. <laughs> The reason I say that is because that was the response of many Christians when Paul preached on grace. And in Romans 6, 1 and 2, for example, or Galatians 2, 19 through 21, they were asking, 
can we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, can we do whatever we want to? Is that what you're saying? Now that we're Christians, can we just go out and live any kind of life? In fact, there was this idea that the more they actually sinned, the better, because that meant that the more grace they received. So why not sin more so you can actually receive more of God's grace? And Paul was correcting that mentality by saying, just because now you have freedom, that doesn't mean that's not a license to just go out and do whatever you want, because once again, that has to be tempered with love. And if you love someone, you're not just going to go out and do anything you want, everything you want, if you actually love that person. So when you look at passages such as Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, we see that salvation is something that is going to bring about good works. You know, we're not saved because of our good works, but we are saved so that we can perform good works. And the reason being, when you look at passages like Matthew 5, 16, is so that we can actually bring glory to God. We can help others. Same thing when we see in Titus chapter 2, verses 9 through 11, that grace teaches us how to be transformed. It teaches us how to deny sin. It, it helps us to constantly try to to grow closer to God through a relationship with Him. And we discussed this last week about some of the relational illustrations that parallel our relationship to that of Jesus. And one of those is husband and wife. As you just demonstrated that as an example, that if you love your spouse, you're going to do everything you can to try to make them happy. You're going to do everything you can to try to figure out ways that you can be a better spouse constantly, not because of fear of, oh, no, if I don't do this, then X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z, but because you love them and you want to show them and demonstrate that love. And that's no different than our relationship with God and Jesus. And I do want to bring up one passage that I talk about in my book that to me was quite eye-opening when I started studying it, and it's the the second uh, second chapter in the book of James, which everybody probably in the churches across, that's they're probably familiar with that. Yeah. And, you know, James, when you look at James 2, especially James 2, 24 through 26, I preached on that a lot. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Faith without works is dead. Or James 2, 19. Even the, even the demons believe and tremble. And you, you really just have all this ingrained in you from a very young age. It's a obedience, 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 obedience. And it's almost like we're like robots. So whenever you say all you have to do is love God, the automatic response is, oh, so you're saying we don't have to be obedient. Well, of course not. When did love ever imply disobedience? Yeah, it <laughs> we, doesn't. We have to think about these things for a minute. Why, why do we believe love implies disobedience? And that shows you how we have been wired to believe that love is, is in and of itself not enough when love is everything because of what all is going to result from love. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 22, 36, 38, everything hinges and hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor. Well, is that the only thing you have to do? That's the only thing you have to do, because if you love God and love your neighbor, you're going to do a whole lot more than a law could ever tell you to do. Well, and it gets into being the people God has called us to be rather than doing the things on an arbitrary list that we have constructed from our own ideas about what the Bible is demonstrating. And whenever you look at what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, I mean, in that entire discourse, if you go into chapter 12, he's talking about spiritual gifts. He's talking about these miraculous abilities that the people in that era possessed and how they were wanting the best gifts. Some of them were wanting speaking in tongues. They were elevating the importance of some gifts over another. And that's like that's like elevating the importance of one tool over another tool. 
you know, like I'm going to use a hammer for a in a completely different scenario than what I'm going to use a wrench for. And I'm going to use an oil filter strap in a completely different scenario than what I'm going to use a pneumatic framing nailer for. Different tools have different applications, but they were arguing over it. But the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, none of that matters if you don't have love. If you don't have love, you have nothing. But we tend to downplay that idea in favor of a list. So whenever we see obedience through the lenses of love, we see that obedience is something that is required, but how we get there and how we demonstrate that obedience is different from the framework that is so often promoted in what we grew up under. I mean, you, you can't get around obedience. It is absolutely an essential facet of what it means to be a Christian, but it's not colored the way that we often think it is. Well, and I... I'm even careful, Lee, now with the way I even use words like essential and and obligatory because all of those things scream law. You know, what's essential and what's not essential? What it, What is mandatory? What's not mandatory? What's obligatory? What's not mandatory? Never once in my relationship with my wife have we used the word essential. <laughs> for, for what, you know, it's essential. It's essential, Kevin. You clean the dishes. It's essential. Well, I, is it is it essential? I've I've never even thought of it that way because it's a relationship. It's it's it, to me I like natural. It's not essential. It's natural. It's it's going to happen. It is it is once again it it goes back to that idea of polarization. And the reason being is because for myself where I really struggled when I first started changing with this concept was I would go to passages like Hebrews 5, 8, 9 that you know God God is you know Jesus is the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 15, 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. First John 5, 3, this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. And we're just taking all these passages in isolation. I mean, even what what is what is the the totality of man? Fear God and what? Keep his commandments commandments. And so we hear all of these things constantly and we cherry pick all these verses about obedience. And then that becomes our, our driving force is obey, 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 obey. But the problem with that is we are, we are looking at it in a complete opposite way. And, and so let me demonstrate exactly what I'm talking about here, because people once again are going to say, well, Kevin, you're tell, you're saying that Obedience is not important. Obedience is, you just said, obedience is not essential. I'm saying that if you love someone, there's no way you're not going to have obedience. That's that's what I'm saying. And I think um, when you look at James 2, this this will change your mind. I'm, I'm very confident, those who are listening. So James 2 is the works chapter. Everybody in the churches of Christ who grew up in a legalistic way, I was very familiar with James chapter 2. And not just those in the churches of Christ, anyone who grew up in this fundamental idea of obedience, 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 they're very familiar with James 2. And when you look at James 2, there's, there's, there's a couple of illustrations that he uses. One of those illustrations is Abraham sacrificing his son Isaac. Now here's what's interesting about it. When you look at this passage, it says that it wasn't until after his work that his faith was completed and then it could be said that that he was found righteous okay so the argument made is you have to actually have obedience in order to prove your love to god i'm going to explain to you not only is that not true but james 2 proves that's not true and here's how 
if when you look at James two, the whole premise of James two is if you have love, you will be you will be willing to have works. That works are going to be a natural result of your love, and that that is going to 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 demonstrate that you do love someone. But is the work, is it the work that is absolutely essential? And the answer is no. And how do I know that? Well, Lee, let me ask you this. Did Abraham actually kill his son Isaac? No, he didn't. How then could James say that it was Abraham's killing of Isaac that justified him when he didn't even go through with the actual action that supposedly justified him? Well, it doesn't work. It absolutely doesn't work. Because Abraham was called by God to do a thing, to take Isaac up there on Mount Moriah, to offer him as a sacrifice, and his hand was stayed by the angel of the Lord. They found the ram in the thicket, and then they offered the sacrifice. Abraham demonstrated his willingness to do what God had ordained, but did he actually do it? No, he did not. And so this this is what is mind-boggling. This is what literally blew my mind. Here I had been using James 2 to say, no matter how good your heart is, if you don't actually complete the action, there's no way God can save you. Well, if that's the case, James sure did use a horrible illustration to prove that. (laughs) Yeah. Because out of all the illustrations he could have used to prove that you have to have works to go to heaven, why in the world did he use an illustration where Abraham didn't even follow through with the action? The answer is because this demonstrated that he was willing to, to follow through with the action, that his heart was willing to do what he needed to do. And even when you look at Hebrews chapter 11 and 12, which we call the, you know, Hebrews 11, kind of the, the hall of faith, if you will. When you look at the, the two examples there about Abraham, Abraham did this in his heart. He was willing to do it. In other words, he had already gone through with the action in his mind. And what's what's interesting to me is that we understand this with other actions. Um, for example, if you if you hate someone in your heart, God already acknowledges that as, as sin. It's already murder. If, if you have looked upon another to lust in your heart, even if you haven't completed the action, the physical action, God looks at that as adultery. And so if God can look at our hearts and realize that we're sinning, even if we don't do the physical work of sinning, and yet we're still guilty, could he not also look at our hearts, even if we didn't complete the physical action of righteousness, and see that we're still willing to follow him and it be accounted to us for righteousness because of our faith, even if we misunderstand something, even if we didn't complete the work, if we have a heart that loves God and that was willing and is willing to do what he asks us us to do. And that really, to me, is, is complete. It completely changes the game when you understand that. And I'm not saying game in a derogatory way, but it changes the way that you look at your whole Christian walk because now it's not a matter of looking behind your shoulder all the time wondering, am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? Am I doing this right? It's looking to your heart saying, well, am I willing? If this is something God wanted me to do, if this is something I needed to do, would I be willing? And that that is where our emphasis should be is that developing that relationship because, once again, relationship will take you well beyond what law ever could. Well, and I I think you see that with Jesus. You know, one of the things I'm really appreciating is taking a more contextual reading of Scripture. Whenever you look at what Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You know, you love me if you do whatever I say. You know, those, those passages that you referred to before. You know, when the Pharisees asked Jesus, you know, what's the greatest commandment? He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you look at Jesus's parables, 
about loving God and what that looks like and loving your neighbor and what that looks like. You look at the antitheses that Jesus gave on the servant on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, Moses said unto you, but I say unto you. You know, all of these things illustrate that heart transformation is at the forefront of God's mind. Even if you go further back in James and you take a look at James chapter one and verse, what is it, 22, where he says, be ye um, doers of the word and not hearers only. And whenever we look at that passage, what do we do? Our application for James 1 and 22 is, is that we say, be doers of the word and not hearers only. So in order to know what a doer of the word is, we're going to hop all over the scripture like a kangaroo to find these passages that paint a picture of a list of rules and requirements that we have to follow. And if we do all of those things, well, then we are being doers of the word. But that takes what James says out of context, because whenever James says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's a statement James is making at the outset of his letter. That is his grand thesis statement for the entirety of his epistle. So if we want to know what James means about being a doer of the word, we need to look at how James describes that. And I think you did a great job of that. But he goes on in, in verses 21, he says, lay aside wickedness and filthiness and meekly receive the implanted word. In verses 23 and 24, he says that a doer or one who isn't a doer forgets what kind of man he is. So even James is putting the emphasis on being a different kind of person rather than doing a rote list of arbitrary rules and regulations. Even James is referring to a transformation of the heart. And when he gets into taming the tongue, you know, what was it that Jesus said? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In everything that James describes, all of the things that he alludes to in the remainder of his book, he's talking about being a doer of the word and being a doer of the word means being transformed and having your heart renewed. And now I'm preaching. Um, but, <laughs> but that's, that's the point that he makes. And the apostle Paul alluded to the same point in Romans chapter 12 and verses one and two, where he talks about being transformed by the renewing of your mind. And when we think about that change of heart, that's what we're talking about. It's a transformation that occurs from within. And when you're a doer of the word and you're obedient to the will of God, that is a natural manifestation of that change that Jesus has wrought within your heart and soul. It, to me, it would be like asking, you know, I'm a big Disney World fan. And it would be like someone coming up to me and saying, hey, Kevin, I heard you're going to Disney World next week. Um, is it a requirement to have fun at Disney World? <laughs> that that question is is so nonsensical within that context because i love disney i'm not even going to is it essential i'm going to say well how do i get i don't you know is it what do you mean is it essential i i i i have such a desire to go there and have a good time it's not an essential it's just gonna happen it's it's a given and when we read scripture all of the james point paul's point jesus point it's 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 a given it's a given. We've, if you have a heart change, it's a given you're going to be changed. And that that is really the way that the scriptures, that's the way that the scriptures write, uh, are written. It's a given. These things are given. And my, my wife, Bethany, and I were talking about this because she was listening to our last podcast. And one point that she brought up and I thought was interesting is she said that we really emphasize the idea of legal certainty and how that can breed arrogance. But at the same time, when you view things through the lenses of law, the problem is, is that you're constantly doubting. Uh, many people are constantly doubting, and even those who are coming across arrogant on the outside, inwardly, they they're insecure. 
because if they are trusting in themselves, they know how sinful they are. I know how sinful I am. I can do a podcast and talk a good talk and I can post good things on social media and I can come across as this great guy. But deep down, I know I'm my righteousness is filthy rags. I know my my weaknesses and I, I have to be honest with those things. And so if I'm relying on my own knowledge to number one, know and make sure I'm getting everything academically correct, that's difficult enough. But when I'm also relying on my own ability to do everything correct all the time, it's no wonder why people are living in such fear. People are living in such hopelessness that they really believe that there's no way they can go to heaven. And they try to just continue to work harder and harder and harder. And any type of faith in Jesus, any type of confidence is always shaken because we know that deep down we're, we're, our righteousness is filthy rags. Even if we don't say it to people, we know our own weaknesses, man. We know our own inconsistencies. And, and that's why we cannot rely on this law-based legality. And even the question that, the, that was asked by, by the listener, there's a sense in which I, you, can, you can tell there's a lot of uncertainty in that question. Um, you know, does that mean we can do anything we want to? And and while that question may sound like it's coming from a more legal based perspective, there's also a lot of uncertainty in that question because because it's this idea. Well, well, what do I have to do and what do I not have to do? Uh, whether the the person who asked it realized that there is a lot of sense to that because what's happening is when you begin saying there is no list, it rocks your legal certainty. And, and it's like, wait a minute. So like, what do I absolutely have to do to go to heaven? (laughs) You know, what, what do I not? And it's not being asked, you know, and I'm, there's no doubt from, from her perspective, it's not being asked in a smart aleck way because I I asked the same thing. It's like, well, what, what am I supposed to do then? What do I have to do? What do I not have to do? Well, it begins by changing your approach in the way that you're, that you're looking at things. Yeah. Paradigm shifts aren't easy. And to me, this is one of those things that even demonstrates just how deeply rooted this sense of legalism can be and how hard it is to move past that because we get it in our minds. Well, obedience means I'm keeping an arbitrary list of rules that have been inferred from a series of inferences from the scripture. But if that list isn't the means by which I approach God and draw near unto him, what does obedience look like? Because we have been so conditioned, like you said earlier, we have been so conditioned to view obedience as keeping a list that we have a hard time conceiving of obedience in any other way. So for the for the time being, for the time that we have left, because we really do did want to focus on trying to keep this short, is I would like to talk about the list of things that our people commonly look at and how those are approached through a lens of obedience, if that's okay, or through a lens of obedience in trust and in grace. Yeah, kind of the difference of of how we look at these things compared to how we used to look at them. Yeah, and and I think that the big ones that we could talk about would be the assembly, the Lord's Supper, um, singing, giving of our means. You know, all of those things are part and parcel with what we do. Those are ingrained within our the culture of our movement, with the culture of our people. And the way that I used to look at the assembly is probably exactly the same way or very similar to the same way you used to look at the assembly. We assemble, this is the old way that I used to think about it. We assemble on the first day of the week because Hebrews 10 and 25 says that we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but so much more to stir up love and good works as we see the day approaching. 
And we know that the assembly took place on the first day of the week from Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Being the disciples came together on the first day of the week to break bread. And we see that the purpose was to come together for the sake of observing communion. So because I have a command here that I need to assemble with the saints, if I forsake the assembling, then I've sinned. Would, the, would you say that's a fair approximation of, and that's a quick version. I mean, there's more to it than that. But would you say that that fairly encompasses that old way of looking at it? Yeah, that's exactly the way I looked at it. And that's the way that a lot of people have looked at it, especially during COVID, the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's interesting because I was reading yesterday some different comments from churches and actually that I used to associate with and where I used to preach, not actually full time, but where I had done some public speaking and some guest speaking. And I was just looking at some of the comments that, that these churches were making on social media. And one of them was how they were one of the they actually said we were one of the few faithful congregations left in America because we decided not to close our doors at all during this time and that all other churches who did show that they have a complete disregard for for God and his his commandments. And when you look at that mentality, the the really the rationale behind it is that we're doing what God said we're supposed to do. So that breeds that superiority over everybody else, but also if, if that's not a law-keeping way of viewing God, I don't know what is. But here's also what they went on to say. The guy actually wrote a 25, 29-page book on why you were supposed to continue worshiping at your building uh, and that nothing should have changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. I mean, literally, he wrote this whole—it was like a, this small booklet. He called it an article, but it was like 20, 25 to 29 pages. And and, and in it, he his emphasis was on— how we don't actually have to come together on Sunday for Bible class or Sunday night or Wednesday night. And it's interesting because to me, to, they canceled all those other services. They canceled all those other services. But they said we have to come together at least once on Sunday. That's mandatory by God. Well, here's what's interesting about that. I have known of churches who, ours being included, have discontinued public assembly during this time. But have offered multiple opportunities to study through Zoom, through to study through social media, live stream. And here's what's interesting when you think about this. Law said, what's the minimum thing we have to do because of obligation? Well, we at least have to come on Sunday so that we can say that we, we check the box of Hebrews 10.25. But relationship says, well, because of what's going on, um, our, our congregation has chosen, we don't believe you have to, but we've chosen for for our opinion that it would be better to discontinue during this time. However, we're going to offer all sorts of aids and study and worship times throughout this so that you can get closer to God. So the one who thinks they're meeting the demands of the law, they're actually focusing on God less than the one who is not coming together just to check that Hebrews 10.25 box. They're actually focusing on God more throughout the week because their desire is not to check a box and say, I'm obedient to God. Their desire is to get closer to Jesus, whereas the other church, their focus was not to get closer to Jesus. Their focus was, we're at least going to cancel everything else, and but we are going to have one service on Sunday so that we can say we did what God wanted us to do. So to me, that's a perfect demonstration of the difference of where I was and where I'm at now. You know, I'd really like to see your book chapter and verse for all this Zoom stuff and all these innovations you're talking about <laughs> online. I'd really like to see that, Kevin, because you you got to have that. But I think that is a good example. And 
another example of this idea is whenever we talk about the assembly is, is there's basically two different frameworks. And one of them is we must assemble because Hebrews 10, 25 and Acts 20 and verse 7 says that we need to. The law says that we must assemble. And to me, if you're trying to be persuasive, because part of our duty is to carry Jesus to those that are lost. And if you're trying to be persuasive and you make a persuasive case to someone who is unchurched, to someone who has no, you know, they didn't come up in a legalistic system. They didn't come up with the trappings that exist in this. Is that going to be persuasive to them? Is that going to be something that is appealing to them? You know, the Apostle Paul mentioned something about, you know, becoming all things to all men. Is that a way that is going to, you know, become to them an important impetus to assemble with the saints? Well, I don't I I don't really see that. Well, and at that point, everything becomes dry and it just becomes we're doing this because we're, you know, I'm going to Disney World, not because I'm enjoying it, but because I have to. And, And let me let me let me bring this point up, too. You never have to convince somebody to do something they don't already have a desire to do. If someone yeah. already has a desire to do something, you don't have to convince them. You might be, you might have to aid them a little bit. But this one church in particular that I'm thinking of, while they're beating their chest talking about how faithful they are, they ended up canceling all their other services. Which to me is is kind of funny because if they don't think anything should have changed, then why are they why are they canceling all their other services? So that yeah. I kind of do find that ironic, but. The, but the point is, it, it goes back, a law-based approaches everything from a minimal, minimalist perspective. What do I have to do to meet, what's, what do I, what do I at least have to do? And even in this article, this, this man, he was writing, he says, well, we don't have to come on Wednesday night. We don't have to gather together in, in small groups. We don't have to gather together in Bible class. We don't have to gather together uh, to, to study, um, you know, during the week. We don't have to do these things, but we do have to come together on Sunday morning. So it's nothing about what do we want to do? What do we get to do? How can we better serve God? It's all about obligatory, mandatory, this, this under compulsion. And I wanted to just quote second Corinthians nine, seven, where Paul is talking about giving. He said, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. Even Paul is saying, God's not wanting you to give just because you, you're supposed to. He wants you to do it because you realize the essential need that others have, not that God has. You know, when we talk about, is it essential to, to, to do works obedience? No, it's not. Not for God, but it is essential for our, for our fellow men. And if we actually love God, and if we really understand that loving God encompasses loving people— then works are going to be something that we're going to we're going to view as something that we need to be doing not under compulsion or reluctantly but because we realize that they need help and we want to help our brethren and we want to help others who who are even outside of Christianity. Well, and that's the entire purpose of the assembly in the first place and you know in Hebrews 10:24 it you know it tells us that or in 10:25 you know to stir up love and good works amongst each other. So for me assembling isn't something that I have to do as a Christian. I don't have to assemble with the saints. I get to do it because even if I look back, if if we look at the entirety of the scriptural narrative, we go back even to the very beginning, whenever God created man, why did God create Adam and Eve and place them in the garden? Because he, from my perspective and what so many other scholars throughout the centuries have said is because God desired to express his love. He has such a superabundance of love that he wanted someone to share that love with and to express that love too. And he makes Adam and Eve in the garden and he draws near unto them in the garden and walks with them until they sin and they, and the fall occurs. 
Well, then in Exodus, the, in the entire system of Passover was a system by which God calls them to himself where they can commune with God once again, where they can remember what God had done for them. But in the temple, in all of the tabernacle rituals, in all of the temple rituals, is God calling his people to be close to him once again. In the Sabbath, you have God desiring his people to share with him in his rest. And whenever we assemble on the first day of the week, it's what so many of our people and preachers have called a divine appointment. Not in a legal sense that it's God's, you know, put it in his, in his, you know, timekeeper in his uh, calendar app and you have to be there. You're insulting God, but God desires his people to draw near unto him. And who wouldn't want to do that? If someone loves God, who wouldn't want to draw near and get close with their brethren and be there with their brethren and encourage their brethren and show love to their brethren who wouldn't want to do that? If they love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and if and those who love their neighbor as themselves, well, so, and these, these these questions at that point when they when they get that everything becomes a given. The, these questions become, as I said before, absolutely nonsensical when we understand what we're actually teaching. When we understand what Jesus taught, what Paul taught, what what Peter taught, when we understand the Christian system as Jesus taught it. We're not going to be asking these. These questions are actually non-existent at that point. I mean, if I have a if I have a good relationship with my wife, and you you're going to ask me, is it essential for you to have sex with her, Kevin? Is it essential for you to go on dates with your wife and enjoy good food at good restaurants, Kevin? Are these things essential? Tell me what you have to do. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding yeah. me? Like, yeah. uh, what what in that doesn't even. It, in what realm does it make sense to ask a man who's attracted to his wife if he it's essential if if it, does he have to have sex with her? Does that even make good sense to you? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> you know, but but and we understand that's that's the most ridiculous thing because we yeah. understand when you have a good relationship, the the things that that here's the way I put it: if you have a relationship with Jesus. What is obligatory to law-keeping Christians is going to be enjoyable to relational Christians. To those who, who view Christianity as a relationship, those things are going to be desirable and, 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 and enjoyable. Whereas to a law, a law Christian, uh, law approach system, you know, if a Christian approaches Christianity through a law approach, theirs is only going to be obligatory, it's going to be mandatory, and it's probably not even going to be very enjoyable. You're just doing it because you're supposed to do it. And that, that just, it's a completely different way of viewing Christianity. That's what we've talked about in the past couple episodes. <clears throat> if someone is still viewing Christianity through the lenses of law, it's really hard for me today to have a, a conversation about much uh, the, is, in way of theology, because unless we are on the same page with that, you're, you're looking at everything in a completely different way. And because of that, it's very difficult to even begin having these conversations because I don't even, I, I can't even answer your question because your question doesn't even exist within my system of Christianity. Yeah. We assemble because we love God and we love our brethren and we want to see them. You know, we observe the Lord's supper because we see God calling us to commune with him to remember Jesus, to, to look back on what he did for us and the import of his sacrifice you know, we sing, not because it's a required commandment, but because through that singing, we approach God. We express our love and our appreciation and adoration to God. We encourage our brethren. We show our love to our brethren through those songs. 
you know, we give of our means. We don't give of our means because it's a required commandment. We give of our means because we recognize the good that the church can do with those funds. We recognize the needs that that giving and that contribution can meet. And it, it, it doesn't really change a lot of the functional approaches that take place as it relates to obedience, but it just changes the method by which you arrive at that conclusion. And like you said, it makes it more enjoyable. And I really love what you said in one of our last episodes where you said, we have freedom in Christ, but not everyone enjoys their freedom. And that's the entire purpose behind this is to let our brethren know that there's a way that you can find your freedom in Christ and you can enjoy your freedom. You can find that hope. And I I mean, I I think we've really covered this idea. The the horse is dead. We've brought it back to life and and we've (laughs) killed it again just so we could beat it some more. I think we've approached it really, really well. But I mean, in summary, we can say that obedience comes from a transformed heart and, and it's a natural expression of our love for God and our neighbor. Obedience isn't keeping a list of rules and regulations that we have to follow all the time or else obedience stems from a changed heart. We draw near unto Jesus. We seek to know Christ and our obedience to him is a natural expression of that desire to know him. Well, if, if obedience from a law-based perspective is essential in order to go to heaven, you will never have a day of rest in your life because you're going to number one, constantly be questioning if you have figured everything out correctly. And number two, you're going to be constantly wondering why you are failing to do everything that you know you're supposed to be doing. And that's why I, I don't even like the question is, is this essential? Is this essential? Is this essential? Because that, that what that does is that's going to constantly breed the what if mentality. Well, what if, if this is essential? Well, what if, what if, well, what if something is essential that I don't know? And what if this, what if this, what if this? With, I'll tell you one thing, I do not know if I'm doing everything correctly right now. I don't. I honestly do not. I know before I wasn't and I thought I was. I think I am right now, but you know what? I thought I was before. But here's what I am confident in, and you cannot debate me on this. I'm confident that my faith is in Jesus Christ. I do know that. That's not something that I could be wrong on. My faith is in Jesus Christ. I could be wrong on some of the ways I'm manifesting that faith, but I am not wrong as to I know for a fact I have put my faith in Jesus Christ. Now, people may disagree with with, with, with the way that I am, am demonstrating that in some ways, but what you cannot debate is the fact that I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ. So I've never been wrong on that in the sense that I have always known. Does that make sense? I've always known that I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ. So if I know I've done that, my surety comes from the fact that my faith is in Jesus to take care of me versus my faith is in this list of commandments that I have to believe that I have to do everything because it's essential in order for me to go to heaven. So that that is something that I would really encourage the listeners to think about is what are you what do you know? What do you know? Because if you believe that there's this list out there, this intangible list that's essential to go to heaven, that you have to figure it out and then you have to complete it and continue to complete it, you're, you can always be wrong. And if your faith is in getting in going to heaven is in getting that list correct, then no wonder you're constantly thinking, what if, what if, what if? But if your faith becomes in Jesus, you know that you've put your faith in Jesus, then you're still going to wonder, am I doing everything correctly? Because I do. That's why we're doing this podcast. We're talking about different things. So I constantly wonder, well, I wonder if I'm doing this. I wonder how I could better serve God. 
here's the difference. I'm not constantly shaking in my boots saying, oh, I wonder if I'm doing this right, because if not, I'm going to I'm going to be lost. Now, I'm, you know, okay. even if I don't have this right, God knows that I'm trying to get things right. God knows that I want to transform. God knows that my heart, as David said, search my heart. And even despite my shortcomings, despite my misunderstandings, it's okay because my certainty is not in getting everything right. It's in my faith. My faith is in Jesus Christ to cover me, even though I am going to fall short and I am falling short. Amen, brother. Establish your hearts, James says. And to me, I I think there's no better note on which we could end this episode. I promise, though, in the future that we're not going to spend 45 minutes answering each question. You know, we we did really good today, though. We didn't go too far over (laughs) what we had shot for. But I I think this has been highly profitable because, you know, the last thing that I want to do is engender within the minds of our listeners this idea that, you know, it doesn't matter because it does, but it doesn't matter in the way we thought it matters for for so long, you know. And one of the things, another thing I don't want to do is give any ammunition to the naysayers that may be out there and which there are going to be people, there are going to be naysayers that are going to say whatever they want to say. And that's really more of a demonstration of where they are than where we are. So those that are listening in good faith, hopefully this answers your question. If you've had the same question, um, is there anything else you want to add to that, man? No, what I want to emphasize is that where else can you have a podcast that if you ask a question, we're going to spend almost an hour taking time to answer it. There are very few of those out there, man. <laughs> well, thanks so, to all. So we, we are interested in what you have to say, and we're, we're definitely not trying to run away from any questions. We, we, wanna, we probably are going to be spending too much time on it, but I would rather do that than not enough because we care. We care. We've been there, and we, I've asked this, pretty much the same question that, that was asked earlier. So we care. We've been there. We, can, we, we have a lot of empathy for this, and we want to we wanna help out as much as we can. Yes, brother. Thank you once again to all of our listeners. Thank you once again, share our podcast far and wide, follow us on Facebook, give us a five-star review on Google, on Stitcher, on Podbean, on Apple podcasts. We'll be on Spotify very soon. Just in whatever platform you choose to listen to us, please give us a rating, give us a review and share our podcast with others that would benefit from it. Because in all of this, we want to do what we can to shine that light of Jesus Christ to the world, especially to our brethren, and let our brethren know that there is hope and we can have hope once again. So thank you all for listening, and we will see you next time.